listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Church, you may be seated and my name is Mark and um, one of the leaders here, and as Adam said, wow, yeah, a lot of people still traveling, it looks like, and I know Adam's glad Brittany gets home maybe in the next hour or so, uh, played single dad as she was over in Uganda for a couple of weeks. Uh, so this morning, I want to invite you to two places. Go to Matthew 1 and also Genesis 28. We're going to kind of be in a couple, of, or Genesis 38, Matthew 1. And Genesis 38, because here's what we're going to do. Uh, next week does start the official Advent kind of season. Maybe you're not familiar with that. Maybe that's not something you did growing up. So what you do, grab one of these booklets. In fact, the first few pages will kind of explain, hey, what is this thing called Advent? And why do we do this? And what is it all about? And it will quickly explain that. So basically, there is a candle each night, we choose Sunday nights when we do ours. That's typical of tradition. And each night, the candle represents a certain uh, theme that you focus on. And there's some scripture for you to read, a prayer for you. So grab those booklets and uh, begin next week. But what we're doing, we're actually going to start a week early with our Advent series. Because Christmas is this time of year that most people, I say most, actually look forward to. And yes, we know it's the opening of presents. It's maybe the family traditions that you might have, whether it's looking at Christmas lights or maybe it's making and decorating Christmas cookies. Uh, maybe there's some special foods that show up this time of year like figgy pudding or different things like that. But Christmas is a time that most people, we look forward to this time. But ultimately, Christmas it's the time that we come up close and personal with seeing the fulfillment of God's promises. And that's really what Christmas really should be all about. That it is a time that we get to see the fruition of God promising something and then actually bringing it to happen. So let me give you some examples of Christmas. I'll just read these. You don't have to turn there, but you're in Matthew 1. This would be a good thing maybe to write in the margins of some scriptures about Christmas. The prophecy from Isaiah, we read in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government, of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So a promise all the way back from Isaiah that we get to see happen. You can read about it, the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, he says, you will lie down with your fathers, talking about King David. But this is the promise. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
We read about it in the Psalms, the promise of 89, verses 3 and 4. It says, you have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all the generations. And so Christmas is the culmination of the promise that God the Father would send a Savior, a Messiah, and everyone would come through the family tree of David. So this promise begins way back with Abraham. Remember, I'll bless you and I'll make you the father of, of generations, and through you I will bless the world. And it will flow through David. And so God's made this promise, but now he's kind of boxed himself into, well, it has to happen exactly this way. So Christmas is about remembering God's faithfulness and that God always does what he says he will do. But this is what is so fascinating. It's not only that God keeps his promises. We can somewhat wrap our mind around that, but it's how he does it. So you're in Matthew chapter 1. You find Jesus's family tree. Maybe you have one of those things that you've kind of kept. Maybe it's a family Bible and you've got this little tree. My grandmother had one that was painted and everybody was born, got a little apple with their name on it that she glued on this painting. But you have Jesus's family tree. And as you read down through these names, here's what's interesting. You got, you know, so-and-so and came so-and-so and so-and-so came so-and-so. But of this genealogy, there are five women that are mentioned. Only five, but it is a fascinating group of women. What we're going to see over the next five weeks, we're going to take a week and look at each one of these women in Jesus' genealogy, his family tree of Matthew chapter 1. We'll begin with Tamar and Ruth and, uh, let's see, who else? Uh, Bathsheba, uh, Mary, and Rahab. What is interesting is that these women, they are not perfect. In fact, we're going to see some crazy things. But yet God, in his infinite mercy, he is going to use all of these women, as imperfect as they are, in his perfect plan to bring about the Savior of the world. So over the next five weeks, here's kind of the, the big overarching idea. We'll look at something unique every week. We're going to start with Tamar today, and we're going to look at the idea of hope. She's a woman of hope. We'll look at Rahab. If you know her story, we're going to look at faith. We'll talk about Ruth, and she's the woman of love. Bathsheba, you know her story with King David? A woman that experiences unlimited grace. And that young mother of Mary that we read about in the New Testament. And just how obedient she was through all of this. So each week we'll look at a different theme. But overarching over Advent of 2017. This is what I hope we come to know and to believe. It's that God sees not just who you are. But who he is making us to be. Now you don't know a lot of things maybe about me in our life group. We're kind of getting to know each other. And each group, each kind of week, somebody's kind of sharing about themselves. So I'll share something about me is that you've really never seen me lead worship. And there's a reason for that. That's not my gifting. But at one time, I entered in, believe it or not, a singing competition. Blows my wife's mind because she's usually around when, you know, I'm making a joyful noise. 
And, uh, but I entered into a singing competition. My song was, maybe you'll remember this, He's Still Working on Me to Make Me What I Ought to Be. Took him just a week to make the moon and stars, the sun and earth and Jupiter and Mars. And I think it's, had to write it down. Oh, how patient he must be. He's still working on me. And that's kind of the overarching thing we're going to see from all of these women. That God not only sees who we are, but who he is making us to be. Now I know this past week, if you're like me, many of you have spent time with some family. And listen, if you think your family's crazy, maybe dysfunctional, I want you to know you have nothing on the family that we are going to look at this morning. In fact, I hope you'll walk away feeling hopeful. Listen, as crazy as my family may be, God has you in that family for a reason. Now, we don't get to choose our families. God is behind it, and he knows what he's doing. So as crazy as your family might seem, let me know. I'm going to let you know that why you've got nothing on this one today. Now, it's, it's a fascinating story. And listen, I'm going to do my best to keep this appropriate for our children in the room. But parents, just know you're probably going to get some questions at some time today, maybe on the way home or whatever. But I'm going to do my best to kind of keep it PG because, listen, this story, uh, I was telling uh, Fredo, he went and read and he's like, wow. Yeah, I, don't, I want to see what you're going to do with this. So let's go to Genesis chapter 20 or 38. You've got Judah and Tamar. Actually, two Tamars in the Bible. Uh, you've got one that is the daughter of uh, David. Uh, but this is a different Tamar. So we're going to begin in chapter 38, beginning in verse 1. Let's get to know this crazy family a little bit. And this is what it, how it reads. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers, and he turned aside to a certain Adalmite, whose name was Hariah. So here's what happened. You know Judah. So let me kind of frame this up a little bit. So Judah, look back at the title of 37. So Judah is one of the sons, the 12 tribes of Israel that we'll come to know. But he's in this really crazy family that he is one of 12 brothers. He's kind of number four in line. But you can see what just happened in 37 is these brothers are jealous of Joseph. And he comes in, and he's checking on them, and he tells them about the dreams, you know, he had. His father's made him this beautiful coat, kind of rubs her noses in a little bit. Man, they want to kill him. So Reuben says, no, let's, let's just leave him in the pit, and that way we don't kind of have to be responsible. But Judah says, hey, why don't we do something? Why don't we sell him to some travelers, some Ishmaelites that, that may come by? And that's what they do. So they take their brother. They bring him out of the pit. There's a kind of a vote that happens. Then they take his cloak and they dip it in the blood of a goat. So remember that. So they go back and they deceive their father. And they tell him, oh, a wild beast came upon him and he killed him. And so many of us are familiar with that story. So then the next chapter, you've got Judah that he leaves. So instead of staying with his family and working through this issue, Judah... He leaves, goes to a different land. So he's kind of running off, and it almost seems like he's kind of going, hey, you know what, man, things are crazy. I'm just going to go, and I'm going to get a brand new start. I have nothing to lose. So he leaves, but what he's soon going to find is you can't run from your problems. 
or your sin, eventually you're going to have to face it. So Judah leaves and he reconnects with this Canaanite friend named Hariah. And it almost seems like, you know, he's going to go, I've got a new start, I've got a friend up here, he'll let me crash on his couch, and uh, I'm just going to make a new life for myself. But he doesn't get far. Look at verse 2. There Judah, he saw a daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took and he went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. And she conceived again, and she bore a son, and she named him Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Shebed when she was born. So Judah, he, he falls for this Canaanite woman, you know. He, he sees her, he's attracted to her, and he falls in love, or at least in lust, with this Canaanite woman. But Abraham and his descendants, they were given a command to not intermarry with foreign or Gentile uh, people. And it wasn't that they were more wicked even times they were. It's because God knew his own children's heart. He called them to follow him and him alone. He knew they would easily be swayed to worship other gods. Now, in fact, that's one of the most amazing things when, if you travel through Israel. And seeing these temples that were built and the worship that went on. You had the Israelites worshiping, but also right alongside false gods. And they left uh, these altars standing. They just allowed it to happen. Because God knows that their hearts are idle factories. And that's why he says, stay away. I want to keep you for myself, for you to be a light to the world. But he intermarries. And these Canaanites were known for exactly that, for worshiping many gods. And listen, there would be a spectrum. You would have some that, you know, weren't quite as extreme, and, but some that were. We know some followed the worship of Baal and Moloch. The fact that almost every time you read about them worshiping, it was in this mindset that everything was done to appease the gods. You had to do things to keep the gods on your side to bless you. In fact, we know of cases that it even involved the sacrifice of children. I mean, don't we easily kind of slide, maybe not in that extreme, but sliding into that belief that, man, we have to do something just to keep God to act in our favor. But we have Judah, when he left his brothers, he's not just leaving his family. So it's so different nowadays. And what is so hard about this passage is that the cultural things that were behind it, when when he would leave, I mean, that's very common. Now, you, you get married and maybe you move off. But, but back then, if you were leaving, you weren't just leaving your family. You were leaving a heritage. You were leaving your parents and your grandparents. You were leaving the things of following the one true God. They had hoped that this would get passed down from generation to generation. And you would stay connected. But from this union, Judah... He has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now, it seems great, doesn't it? Because, listen, there is nothing that was better than having children. That was the ultimate blessing, but especially sons. Man, it seems great. I mean, here he is blessed with three sons. I mean, a, a father couldn't think of anything better. Someone to come and work alongside you. Someone to continue your name, to continue your heritage. 
He'd left the dysfunction of those 12 brothers, and as crazy as that was, he's going to start a new life. But look what happens in verse 6. And Judah took for a wife of Ur his firstborn. So Ur becomes of age. Father looks for his son a wife, and her name was Tamar. So his family is what would happen. He would grow up. comes time for him to take a wife. And this would be to continue the line of Judah. You have a son who had been Judah, the son of Jacob, all the way back to the son of Abraham. So he takes this, and so for a patriarch, there was nothing more important than continuing your name. So here he is, he has a son. He's blessed with three of them to continue this on. So now we see Tamar, who is also a Canaanite. And this marriage would have been arranged by their fathers. And this would have been mutually beneficial for both men. You know, you would pay the dowry. There would have been an allegiance with these families that would align. Maybe some strife would have been put away. But here's Tamar. So let's think about her for a moment. Here you have this had to be exciting, but also absolutely terrifying for this young woman. She's probably about 14 or 15, about the age of our daughter, our oldest. And so she lived her entire life under a certain set of rules, expectations, and responsibilities. And she would have known her place in this family. But all of a sudden, she has to leave what she knows. And she has to marry someone that had been arranged. But not only is she leaving her family, not only is she going to be joining Ur, she would have been joining Judah and his wife. Now, at least there's some distance between you and your crazy families. But here, I would have a house. Marcus or Kylie gets married, she goes off. Ophi gets married, she goes off. But Marcus would get married. And he would basically add three walls to my house. And then when his son would get married, he would add three walls to that house, and it just became this cluster of rooms. So it would almost be like in your living room, that's your house. If you have a son, he gets married, he's living in your kitchen. If you have another son that gets married, he's living in the closest bedroom. That's how close these families were. Now, I don't know about you, but man, God's blessed me. I've got great in-laws, and and, and Marla gets along with my family. But I know it's not the case in every situation. But can you imagine what it's like for this young woman to not only now becoming a new bride, but she's now living actually in the home of her father and mother-in-law. And she's got to find her place. And I don't know what that relationship was like, but I can tell you what it was like with her husband. Because she's going to marry this man and she's going to find a a whole new way of living. Everything for her changed. I can imagine, you know, Thanksgiving comes around. They didn't have that, but a celebration, Passover. Maybe a certain thing and that would have been all different if Judah brings those practices of following Yahweh. But now he's married to a Canaanite. So you've got these collisions of beliefs. Imagine she had a certain way of preparing food, watching her daughter. Well, that's not how you're supposed to do that. What's wrong with her? Why is she putting that there? But she's got to find now her own place. But her job, she's got one job. Her job is to bear children and especially a son to continue the line of Judah. 
But notice what happens. Uh, in fact, it says it meets her husband. Let's meet him in verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. So we don't really know what happens. We don't really know what his wickedness is. Maybe he's abusive to his young wife, Tamar. Maybe he's disrespectful to his parents. Maybe he uh, has no integrity in how he conducts business. We don't really know. But we know he is wicked because look at what happens in the end of verse 7. And the Lord put him to death. So Tamar marries into this family. She's married to Ur. Because he is so wicked, the Lord ends his life. Now this next part is going to be very foreign to us. Look at verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan. So he takes him out. They're, they're sheep herders. He takes him out, counting the sheep, doing the things. He says, hey, guess you heard about your brother. But notice what he's going to say. He says, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up an offspring for your brother. So in Deuteronomy 25, you have the Leverite marriage laws. And this is what it said. It said if you were the oldest son, and certain things would happen. You were the firstborn. Uh, you would get double inheritance. You're the one that was going to continue on the father's name. You're the one that's going to kind of take over. But if you married and you died and you did not have a son, your brother would marry your wife, your widowed wife, bear children with her, but it would not be his children. It would be for his fallen brother. You would bear them in your brother's name. Okay, so I know that seems very foreign, but in that time it was very natural. Life expectancy wasn't 75 or 80. Man, you were lucky to get into your 40s. This would happen often. So look at verse 9. So you kind of think, oh, this is how the story's going to go, but not so fast. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So he's jealous. And he knows, hey, if, if I have a son with Tamar, he's going to get the double portion. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give the offspring to his brother. So I told you, your family was crazy. He had nothing on this one. So he refuses to fulfill the Leverite marriage laws because he knows that his son, the son with Tamar, would be seen as the son of his brother. So since his brother was the firstborn, the son would then receive the double inheritance instead of Onan. But Onan experienced the same fate of his brother. Look at verse 10. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So man, now you're this young woman. First husband dies. You arranged a marriage with the brother, and now he dies. So once again, guess what? gets even crazier. The Leverite marriage law says, guess what? Your husband dies, you marry his brother. If he dies, you still have no sons. You go to the next in line. But good news, Judah has a third son. But look at what happens in verse 11. So then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Hey, remain a widow in your father's house. First of all, this would have been a very disgraceful thing. It's almost in the fact that he would be disowning her. He's sending her back. She's, she's no good. She can't do what her one purpose in life is. She's damaged goods. There's something wrong with her. Go back to your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. 
So when he becomes of age, he says, listen, I'll go back. I'll send for you when he's old enough. But notice what happened. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So she goes and remains in her father's house, very disgraceful. But Judah is being completely deceitful. In fact, we'll see he never had intentions of fulfilling his promise. He's not going to wait till he's old enough because he thinks she's the reason for his two sons' death. That they're the re- or she's the reason that they have died. It's her that she's kind of cursed them in some way. But notice that Judah left town because of the deceit and the sin of him and his brothers. Remember that with the brothers and Joseph and the coat of many colors? They deceived their father. So he's going to go get a fresh start. But notice that he's right back at being deceitful. You can't run from it. You can't run from your problems. You can't run from your sins. They're going to follow you. So let's continue because it gets even crazier. In verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter die. So his, his wife passes away. And when Judah was comforted, meaning when he went through his time of mourning, he went up to Timnah uh, to his sheep herders. He and his friend Hariah, the Adomite. So it's coming that time of year. So he mourns. You would go through a season of mourning. But it came time for the annual time to go up and to shear your sheep. It was an annual kind of celebration and that the men would gather all the sheep. They'd bind them together and they would lead them to this place. Man, this would be a time I imagine that the men really looked forward to. You get to go, you get to hang out with your buddies, you know, you get to fart and scratch and do all those things. And uh, these men, I don't know, maybe the modern day deer camp, something like that. You know, a time you look forward to, you're going to hang out with the buddies. And it's almost like this is just what he needed. But then in verse 13, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up. So you begin to see kind of the deceit that she's going to now be behind. And she sat at the entrance of Enma, which is on the road to Timnah. So she intersects where he's going. She knows he's going to travel a day and he's going to stop there. He's going to rest. He's going to eat before continuing on. For she saw that Shelah was grown up. So somehow she hears, she sees him, and she realizes that she had not given him to him in marriage. So she realizes that Judah has been lying. He has no intentions of setting her up to continue that uh, Leverite marriage law. But remember, she's not Jewish. She's not an Israelite. But she knows this is what she has been set up to do. This is her purpose. In fact, she knows her only hope in society is having a son. If she's going to ever make it in the world, if she's going to ever get outside her father's house, if she's ever going to have a life, it will only happen if she can have a son. So she sets up this plan. Look at verse 15. So she's sitting at the uh, gates of the city, So the ladies of the night, I'll put it that way, this is where they would gather, travelers would pass through, and they would make a living. But in verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought 
She was a prostitute because she had taken off her widow's garb and she had, had put on a veil. For she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and he said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, Well, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Now, I don't need to explain all that's going on there. You can see that. You can kind of see what's happening. But I want you to notice something very interesting. We now have three generations uh, that are now complete with being deceitful. And each involve identity disguising and a goat. Jacob, Judah's father, deceived his father Isaac. Remember that where he puts the, the goat fur on his arm? He goes in, he deceives his father with goat skin to receive the blessing. But then Judah then deceived by Jacob, his father, by dipping Joseph's blood in the blood of a goat. And now Tamar deceived Judah three generations of deceit by disguising herself. And notice what she demanded payment, a goat. But Tamar knows that she's going to have to do something for them to believe that the child that hopefully she conceived would have been Judah. So she asked for three things. Continue reading with me. And she said, if you give me a pledge until I receive the goat, what are you going to give me until you receive the goat? And he said, well, what, shall, what do you want? What shall I pledge to you? And she replied, and she's going to ask for three things. Your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. And notice what he did. So he gave them to her. And he went into her, and she conceived, was uh, conceived by him. Then she arose, and she went away, taking off her veil once she was away from him and putting on the garments of her widowhood. So she walks away with three, these three items. His signet. This would have been a cylinder that you wear around your neck. It would have been unique to every man. Yours would have been different from mine. And this is what you would use to kind of vouch that, yes, I said this, I wrote this, this is my signet, this is my seal. But also his cord. This was a cord. He's a sheep herder. He would use his cord to connect his sheep. And yours would have been different than anyone else's. That way I walk on, I see a group of sheep, I see the cord. Oh, I know those are Judah's sheep. But then his staff. A staff would have been something that you finally found. You would have carved it. You would have made it your own. You've carried it everywhere, used it for protection, used it for support, used it to herd your sheep and your goats. But it would have been unique to Judah. And what is fascinating is that Judah is so blinded that he gives up these three to Tamar, and she leaves and she goes home. And look at what she does in verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat to his friend, the Adelman, he sends the goat and he says, Hey, take this to the woman that was at the gate. When he did, he did not find her. And he asked the men at the place, where is that cult prostitute um, that was kind of outside the roadside there? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So we returned to Judah and he said, hey, I, I have not found her. Also, the men I asked of that place, they said, no cult prostitute had been there. So Judah said, well, let her keep those things of her own. 
and we shall, so that we will not be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you didn't find it. Meaning, hey, I upheld my end of the deal. Man, let's just let it be gone. Man, I don't want to be the laughing stock of the town. Let's just let bygones be bygones. But then in verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, hey, Judah, Tamar, you remember her, your daughter-in-law? She's been immoral. And don't we like to point out other people's failures and sins? He says, moreover, listen, she's pregnant, and she's not married, so it's by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. So Tamar returns home, and she becomes pregnant. Word quickly travels, and it gets back to Judah, and he calls for her to be burned for her sin and her disgrace. But he's going to soon realize that phrase that your mother always taught you, that, oh, what a tangled web we receive when first we practice to deceive. Because look at verse 25. And as she was being brought up, meaning probably drug by the hair to Judah's house, she sent word to her father-in-law ahead of her. By the man to whom these things belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. So she presents these items that Judah gave her. And can you imagine the shock of Judah realizing what had happened? But this, what happens next is utterly amazing. That after generations of deceit and lying, we see a total change in Judah. Look at verse 26. Judah looked at those items. He identified them and he said this. She, a Canaanite, is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. Judah acknowledges his own sin. In fact, this is the first time we've seen the Bible of a person publicly acknowledging their unrighteousness. So let's see how this family saga ends up. And when the time for her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out his hand. And so the midwife, she, she took the scarlet thread and she tied it around his hand just in case there was another baby coming. That way we knew this is the firstborn. But when he came, the scarlet thread that uh, saying this one would come out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name is called Perez. And afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread tied on his hand. And I think that is just God saying, listen, I am in control. And his name was Uriah. Remember, there's no greater blessing. There was no greater blessing of a woman to have children, especially a son. And now Tamar, she has twins. Tamar's firstborn, although surprising, Turn to Matthew chapter 1. You get this crazy, messed up 
dysfunctional, deceitful, lying family. But there in Matthew chapter 1, you begin reading down, and when you see Tamar listed, you'll see the name Perez. And that Tamar's firstborn son becomes the great, 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 great grandfather of David that ultimately leads to Jesus. And so here is the great surprise. You have Tamar, a a Canaanite, someone that is outside God's chosen people. She begins outside, but then turns out to actually be the hero, or one of them, for God's people. In fact, Tamar herself, she preserves the line of Judah. Through her determination to have children, she scratched and he, she claws her way back into Israel. And she secured for Judah the honor of fathering David and ultimately the Savior of the world. So what we see in Tamar is that she's a woman of hope. In fact, remember her only hope. Her only hope in life was a son. In fact, only a son could redeem her. That was her only hope. You know, the same is true for us. Our only hope is in a son. A son, the Messiah, he is called. In fact, only a son, the son of God, he is the only one that can redeem you. And that's why we celebrate Christmas, that our only hope is in a son, the son of God. And so this Judah Tamar crazy story, this is what it teaches us. That God's purpose is bound up in the growth of his people. Your faith, your salvation is not stagnant. That God is always at work in the lives of his children by shaping them to serve his design. Just as he did with Judah and Tamar. Because remember, God sees not just who you are but who he is making you to be. So, I mean, hear this, that that God is not only active when reading our Bibles, though we should, or praying, and what a blessing it is to intercede for others, or attending church. God is active in the world that you live in. When you wake up, tomorrow you don't wake up in a day without him. He's already there. Meaning tomorrow, and every tomorrow that there is, It is his day. He has made it, and he has formed it, and he works in it. And he wants you and I to enter into tomorrow determined to be the person he is shaping us to be, to let Christ be formed in you. So God not only sees who you are, and aren't we thankful for that, but he sees who he's making us to be. And man, if God can work through this family of Judah and Tamar, imagine what he can do in your life. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.